Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and it is my privilege, if I can find my notes here real quick, to welcome all of you to worship this morning, and that is whether you're here in person or over the live stream. We're grateful that you have chosen to worship with us, and it is our hope and our prayer that you truly experience the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, and that we worship him together in spirit and in truth. I would like to, uh, if you're visiting with us, I hope you got our goodie bag and get to know us a little bit, and for all of us. So this is whether you're a visitor, a longtime member. I always like to say, if you're breathing, we invite you to fill out uh, or sign the friendship pad. So if you are at the end of the row, the end of the aisle, you get my Southwest Airline, you know, little spiel here in terms of you get to start things going. Fill out that friendship pad and pass it down the aisle, and that gets us going. A couple different things going on that we want to mention. Uh, after the service this morning is our congregational meeting. The purpose of that meeting, I don't think it will last very long. I think you will be making it to lunch pretty much on time. Uh, but the purpose of that meeting is to elect our new officers for elders and deacons. And so if you're a member of the church, this is actually the way you express uh, the power in terms of shaping the direction of the congregation. You choose your leaders, and so you will have that opportunity to vote for those men that are up for elder and deacon, and we'll do that immediately. So after the service, I'll give the benediction. We'll probably give five minutes or so, and then, so if you're able to attend that meeting, stay put right here, and we'll go from there. As we've had our new beginnings, I'm going to say we are still looking. Uh, I praise the Lord. We have 12 volunteers already signed up for nursery. So we are on the way. We are moving forward. And Tommy Evans will be back uh, to handle sign-ups on the sign-up sheet. So if you are interested in volunteering, as I say each week, the more people sign up, the fewer Sundays you get. I'm not a math major. I was never any good at math. I was always on the uh, other side of the spectrum. But I do think it's simple math. The more people sign up, the less Sundays you have to do this. See, I'm pointing at Doug Hesse over there, the financial advisor. If he can tell me my math is right, <laughs> we, get to, we get to go in that direction. So I will encourage you towards that. So you have the insert that shows different things going on in the life of the church. Uh, I would encourage you to read them when you get home, not during my sermon. That would be nice. And we'll go from there. So now as the prelude is played, let's prepare our hearts for worship this morning.
Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord. And along with the Father and the Spirit, our triune God has taken the initiative and called us into his very presence this morning, that we as his treasured possession may delight in him, may exalt his name, may worship him. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 113, the first three verses. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Father, we exalt you. Holy is your name. We thank you for being here with us and we invoke your very presence that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. Join with us that we would sing and pray your praises, confess our sins, hear from your word, pray our petitions, commune with you. Lord, thank you that you have called us into your presence this morning. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let us stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty.
There are several reasons why I like to include confessions of faith in our liturgy as we go through worship. One of the reasons is that it unites us as a church, not only with one another, what is it we as a local expression of the body of Christ believe, but it also roots us in the history of the church. It shows us that Christianity is not a new thing. And so this morning we are going to confess together from the Nicene Creed, which was the creed that was developed at a council that was called together at a place called, likely enough, Nicaea, where they were debating doctrinal issues, and then they came up with this particular statement that united them and thus roots us in the doctrine of the church. And so, friends, let's acknowledge what it is we believe reciting together from the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father be all for all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's continue to worship this great God that we've just confessed by standing and singing together, How Great is Our God.
Let's continue to worship in our time of prayer, and we will recite together the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in the pastoral prayer. And what I want to focus on this morning in the pastoral prayer is this is the Sunday that uh, is usually acknowledged each year as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Obviously, there is a focus on being pro-life, care for the unborn, a ministry we are passionate about in our missions program. We support various ministries in our area. I'll mention this in the sermon as well, not that it's a pro-life necessarily sermon per se, but I think of the verse, John chapter 10, verse 10. One of the first verses I ever memorized in my Christian walk where Jesus says, the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come to give life and life to the full. Everything Jesus does is about life. And so one of the things I want us to pray about and be about as a church, and I'm going to, if you miss this now, I'll probably repeat it during the sermon so you get to hear it twice, is I want us to be a church that's for something more than a church that's against something. I want us to be known in the community that's a church for the gospel, the glory of God, and the flourishing of all people. I want us to truly be a pro-life church, which means the flourishing of all people from the womb to the tomb. And to really be about Jesus' words, I have come that you might have life, and that we would be that expression on the earth to the community here at Lake Oconee. Would you join me as we pray together the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, and then I will lead us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We praise you that you are the sovereign God, that time is truly in your hands, that you are the great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that though we can look around us and it can appear so often that all we see is sin and death, turmoil and chaos, we know that you are the great God who oversees all, who truly is on the throne, who rules and reigns over all. So we come before you this morning really with a mixture of emotions and feelings. We bring our hearts and turn to you. Lord, we first lament that in so many ways we live in a culture of death. Lord, forgive us that we don't ever pause to simply grieve, that we don't pause to lament. It's the thief who's come to steal and kill and destroy. And there's part of me that wants to cry out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, will tears forever be our sorrow? So we do lament, whether it's the culture of death over the unborn, 
whether it's the ways we live in a culture of death with how we treat each other, it hurts our hearts. But we know that you are a God of life, that Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so often we use that rightly as an evangelistic verse. No one can come to the Father except through you, Jesus. And we say amen to that. That is true. But we forget you're also sharing your heart, who you are. You are the way. You are truth. And you are life. We are united to life. And so, Lord, we pray on this Sanctity of Life Sunday that we would be about life. We pray for the flourishing of life here in the lake country, from the womb to the tomb. We pray for the flourishing of families. We pray for the flourishing of all people. We honor all image bearers because every human being is created by you in your image. And so no matter their background, no matter where, where they come from, we honor the fact that every human being is an image bearer. And we pray, Father, that we as a church would be for life. That in everything we do from this pulpit to our teaching, to our fellowship, to how we relate, to our service, to our involvement in the community, we would proclaim and we would embody life, that we would be true life givers. And we would do so because we have a kingdom focus, because the prayer says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And so, Lord, we praise you that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And we bow before you in humble adoration and in submission and in worship and pray that you would use us in this place. We long to be used here, to be spent, to have our lives be a drink offering poured out for the sake of the gospel. So, Lord, lead and guide us that we may walk in your ways. Teach us your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
and join us as we sing the doxology together. I wasn't sure when it was my turn. <laughs> but as always, Amy, choir, that is so beautiful. And that just, one of these days I'm going to lose it up here and just break down in tears. You know, it's, it's kind of, I'm the one who has to kind of embarrass myself in public because I'm supposed to speak now. But I mean, that is just so moving. We are here to worship. With our entire being, there is something about love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So I just thank you for helping me to do that, bringing me to the throne of grace where we have the opportunity, reading through the Psalms this week, where it says, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy mountain, for holy is he. Let's continue to worship, hearing from him in his word. This is not a speech that I give. This is not my thought. It better not be my thoughts and opinions. We want to look directly at what God's text, God's word has to say. And even when it makes us mad, when it contradicts us, to recognize this is God's word and God is shaping us, God is forming us. Think about what the writer to the Hebrews said, for the word of God is living and active. I think that's one of the reasons Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of the 20th century, the great English preacher, said that the pulpit is the most romantic place on the face of the earth because you never knew, know what the Holy Spirit is going to do in yourself as well as in each one of us. So let's pray. I pray, Holy Spirit, you will have your way amongst us, in me and in us that you will be our teacher, that I will, as best as I can, decrease and get out of the way, that you would have free reign to take your word and apply it to our lives, to comfort, to challenge, to convict, to contradict, to do whatever it is that you set out to do. For your word will accomplish what you've set out for it, your purpose. And so, Father, it will not return to you void. So I pray for what you decide and what you designed to do this morning in and through this time of worship. 
We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're kind of in the middle of that section that goes from Romans 5 to Romans 8. If you remember what I was talking about, this part of uh, the section of the letter to the Romans I've been calling Gospel Life because it describes the life of the Christian. And what Paul is doing is he's alluding back to something that his original context would have been very familiar with because he's speaking to the church at Rome, a cosmopolitan city, the center of the Roman Empire. So it's like if we went to Washington, D.C. and preached. Okay, so he's speaking where there are various groups and cultures of people, Jewish people and Gentile people, people with all sorts of background. And he's giving them what at least his Jewish audience would be familiar with, and that is the context of the Exodus. Because in the Old Testament, the Exodus, the time where God, through his official representative, a man by the name of Moses, led his chosen people out of slavery from Egypt into, okay, remember the story of the Exodus. You've got freedom from slavery, coming to Mount Sinai to get the law, to be thrust out into the wilderness, heading towards the promised land. That's the basic pattern. Basic salvation, freedom, law, wilderness, promised land. Now we look at Romans 5 through 8. And Romans 5 and 6 is all about the Exodus proper, freedom. We're going to be looking at the contrast this morning between the two most influential men ever in human history. It's not a dictator. It's not a president. It's not a government leader. It's not Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Tom Brady. The two most influential men in the history, in human history, are Adam and Jesus. And we're going to be drawing a contrast between what did Adam bring and what does Jesus bring bring. When we get to chapter 6 and 7, especially chapter 7, what do you have there? You have the problem of the law. You have Mount Sinai, so to speak, personified. Paul talks about, well, what about the law? And he talks about his life, leading to him being thrust out into the wilderness, which is all chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is, instead of being overshadowed by a cloud by day and a fire at night, What leads the Christian in their life is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us, governs us, shapes us, directs us, leads us in the wilderness to where we get our inheritance, the the promised land. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, powers nor principalities, the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that is our inheritance. And Romans chapter 5, this is the point of what we've been studying. Kind of, And I have to give you this big picture because we're going to get mired down in some details this morning. And I don't want to lose you. You can ask Evie, I woke up this morning and I said, I hate my sermon. Can I rewrite? Now it's 7 a.m. and I'm going, I think it's a little late to rewrite the sermon. This is preacher's problems. You wake up and you kind of go, can I throw this thing in the trash? And of course, Evie, the godly woman, that God will use it. So I'm trusting that. So I'm giving you the big picture. 
Because Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read in just a second, verses 12 to 17, is all about giving believers the assurance of your living hope. The fact that even though we've got these twin towers of enemies called sin and death that were brought about through Adam, and they're all around us. That's why I referred to our culture as a culture of death. And that's bigger than just the pro-life issue, the abortion issue. That is, turn on the TV. It's a culture of death. We have the assurance that because of Jesus Christ, the greater Adam, that our hope is assured. My prayer for us this morning, even if you don't follow every one of the details I'm going to give you, is that we have our living hope renewed and strengthened. That's what Romans 5 is all about. Showing you God's reign of grace through his ultimate representative, the new and greater Adam, Jesus Christ, and your hope, no matter what your life looks like right now, within and without, you can have that hope assured. You can have that assurance. I don't know about you, but to me, that's good news. You think? You're with me so far? Somebody nod their head, please. Encourage your pastor. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. There's your context. There's your big picture. There's your forest. Now let's dive into some trees. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 17. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Praise God. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Studying this week for the sermon, I was reading a commentary by a man by the name of N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, and he shared the following story that I think uh, illustrates very well the overall point of this passage. He writes, the sculptor was pleased with his work. It was a fine statue, and it looked great in the town square. The subject had lived in the little seaport all his life and had become well-known through organizing the Coast Guard Service. This had turned into absolute fame when, at great risk to his own life, he had rescued, virtually single-handedly, a boatload of people caught off the rocks in a winter storm. The town was overjoyed, jubilant, grateful, and they commissioned a statue of him from the sculptor. But it wasn't too long before trouble arrived. The next summer, a gang of noisy youths came to the town for a laugh. They were causing trouble, rampaging up through the streets, laughing at the passersby. And when they came to the statue, they said, ah, 
Now our real fun begins. First, they daubed it with red paint. Then they threw stones at it. Then they took it in turns to run, jump, kick with both feet in the air. After a few minutes of this, the statue, which had not been made to withstand such treatment, snapped off its base, crashed into the road, smashing it into pieces. The town council all gathered, thinking how to respond, pondering their response, and they called in the sculptor. They said, we're not going to be beaten. We're not going to be defeated. They wanted the statue remade exactly as it had been. But the sculptor had a better idea. He would remake it all right. He wasn't just going to put things back as they had been. This was the opportunity for complete restoration, to do something really spectacular. Now the point of this particular illustration, this particular story that relates to the main point of the passage that we're exploring this morning is just as the sculptor wasn't just going to bring us back to ground zero, remake things just as it was, but he was going to restore it much better than before. The reign of grace that comes through the one man Jesus Christ is far more than simply a return to Adam, is far greater and far more than simply putting back the human race where it was in the beginning. See, where the human race fell in Adam, due to Adam's sin, God has done far more in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And the point of the passage, here's the big picture point I want you to get straight is do you understand the unbelievably lavish scale of God's reign of grace? Let me help you with the answer. Which is why you keep showing, praise God, I have job security. You keep showing up on Sunday morning because we're learning together to cultivate, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 3? The height, the width, the depth, the breadth, and the length of the love of Christ, and then he calls it the love that surpasses knowledge. God's reign of grace surpasses even knowledge itself. Think we have a ways to go in understanding God's reign of grace? See, where Adam brought the twin towers, the twin powers of sin and death, Jesus brings the reign of grace. And we'll look at it from two perspectives this morning. First of all, the reign of grace emerges out of the destiny of death. And secondly, the reign of grace gives us a far greater destiny. Emerges out of death, okay? If you want to take very simple notes, bad news, good news. That's almost the outline of every sermon I preach, by the way, just to give you preacher's secrets. It emerges out of sin and death the destiny of death, and it gives us a far greater destiny. Look with me at verse 12 where he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, so in other words, take note of that, we can't blame Adam. It says, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
Okay, notice again, verse 12 begins with the word therefore, referring back to verses 1 through 11. And what is the point of verses 1 through 11? And for that matter, as we've tried to show the whole section of chapters 5 to 8, and how does it relate? Chapters 5 to 8, and specifically verses 1 to 11, are assuring believers. In other words, here's the point of it. Giving us a greater confidence, renewing us in the fact that our hope is secure because of the work of Jesus Christ. That the living hope of our inheritance, the promised land, is guaranteed and is assured. Now, why does, have to, why does Paul have to give such a strong assurance? Well, it's because there are two main powers and two enemies that can squash the living hope. And that is sin and death. All you have to do is look, you know, look at some of the symptoms of our life. Why do we struggle from time to time with kind of going, why bother? Have you ever thought that? You kind of can get so discouraged, maybe a little depressed, you kind of go, and you're going, why bother? That's the effect of sin and death. Or we get defensive and we go, I'm trying my best, I'm doing the best I can. Sin and death. Or we struggle with assurance. See, these two main powers, these two enemies, can squash the living hope of believers. And Paul is writing to renew our hope. The commentator Thomas Schreiner put it this way. He says, these twin powers were introduced into the world through the sin of Adam and have dominated the human race ever since. Think about that. You may be tempted to think, oh my goodness, things are so much worse today than they ever have been. That is not the case. It started pretty quickly after the sin of Adam. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? That was the James Dobson perfect family, wasn't it? Let's focus on the, fa on the family. Abel, come here. Ha, 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 ha. It started, and what is Ecclesiastes? Which, remember, by the way, is wisdom literature. So it's teaching us wisdom, kind of giving us the above-the-sun perspective by showing us life under the sun. And what does the writer to the Ecclesiastes, the Kohelet, the teacher, say? There is nothing new under the sun. So get out of your mind. If only we could go back to the glory days. The glory days were the Garden of Eden. And they're gone. And we'll get to, we're about to get something far greater. But the glory days were not some bygone era because of sin and death. See, listen to Schreiner again. He says, even though these two twin powers have dominated the human race, the hope of believers is not dashed by sin and death. Jesus Christ has conquered both powers, proving thereby that his impact on history is greater than Adam's. Two atoms have exerted their influence on human history, but the impact of the last atom is greater than that of the former. Believers will experience the hope of the glory of God because they are now in Christ rather than in Adam. He goes on to say, when God created Adam, Adam was called to rule the world for God. That's very important. 
He was called to represent God reigning over the earth, ruling the world as God's representative. In other words, God wasn't going to do it directly himself. He was going to do it through his representative. The technical theological term is his vice regent. Image bearers were called to rule the world, manage God's world for God. Talk about significance. But when Adam sinned, he experienced alienation from God and bequeathed the same alienation to all his descendants. The hope of the new world was destroyed by Adam's sin. The rule promised to Adam has begun to be restored through Christ. And the signal that a new era has dawned is Christ's triumph over death and sin. Since these two powers frustrate human beings in their quest for life, the hope trumpeted in verses 1 through 11 is firmly based because Christ has overturned the negative consequences of Adam's sin. See, here's the structure. Here's how it follows. Here's how the twin powers of sin and death conspire to kill hope. Adam sinned, and all of a sudden, sin enters the world. And sin, we have to get out of our mind, sin is not just breaking the rules. We tend to think of, oh, Adam, why did you let your wife take that fruit? She should have had the mango, not the apple. What were you thinking? Sin is not just, I ran the stop sign. I forgot to take the trash out. I said a naughty word. Get the rule-breaking mentality out of your mind. Sin is a power that basically is a determination to run your life yourself. Adam's sin was basically the determination. There was a sense, here's where the serpent, the crafty serpent, entered the garden. And do you know what he basically did? He basically planted doubt in the seed of Adam and Eve, saying, if God were really good, he wouldn't withhold this tree from you. If God were really good, if you really want to be happy, see, we have something built within our DNA at this point that says the only way for us to be happy is to determine our own fate, to determine our own course, to control our own life. Sometimes we do that, it manifests itself, not in breaking the rules, but in keeping the rules. Sometimes it manifests itself in that we become very, very good people. We please people. We keep all the rules. Somebody criticizes us, we're the first to get into denial. That's not me. Oh, no, 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 I don't do that. We become very good conservative rule keepers. But sin, at its heart, is we are determining we're basically, what was the temptation? What was the sin of Adam that has infected all of us that Paul's talking about? Controlling our own life. Calling our own shots. You see this throughout the scriptures. A summary of it is Judges chapter 21, verse 25. How's that? You can impress your friends and family. Memorize the book of Judges. There you go. How many people do that? But Judges 21-25 simply says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's a good summary of sin came into the world. 
Adam did what was right in his own eyes. What was right in Adam's eyes was basically because Genesis 3.6 talks about Eve took the fruit and gave some to her husband. When you go back and read Genesis 3 again, underline the next four words. Who was with her? Standing next to her the whole time and never said one thing about, um, honey, maybe we don't want to listen to this serpent. Maybe uh, he's misusing the word of God. Maybe Adam should have loved his wife a little bit better, entered into that kind of chaotic, dark situation of doubt being sown and temptation. So therefore, just as sin came into the world, which is not about simply eating an apple, it's about determining the only way for me to be happy is for me to be like God and take life into my hands and do what I want. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, what makes sense to me. And as a result, death, which includes physical death, but is not just physical death. It's death in all its forms. It's alienation from God. No longer was there a communion, a closeness, an intimacy, a vulnerability with God. There was alienation. No longer was there a knowledge of oneself. There was shame. An alienation from one another. Adam and Eve could no longer stand naked looking at each other, being transparent and vulnerable. Instead, they had to hide, isolate. And an alienation from the world, that's death in all its forms. Death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Death spread to the whole world. Why? Because all sinned. N.T. Wright says, sin must have been there in the beginning because death was there. Ruling like a king. Adam played this representative, typological role. Verse 14 says very directly, Adam was a type of the one to come. In other words, Adam was a model, a pattern of the one who was to come. So there's Adam. Now we're going to move on to the contrast. See, that was the bad news. Did you make it through the bad news with me? You're hanging with me? Now we get to the good news. The reign of grace gives us a far greater destiny. Look with me at verse 15. And I want you to notice how many times Paul says, the free gift is not like. Because he's just highlighted what the trespass is like. He's just highlighted what sin and death is like. He's just highlighted the bad news. But verse 15 says, the free gift is not like the trespass. Do you know what he's doing there? He's saying, here's hope. Here's assurance. It is bad out there. The trespass is bad. Death has spread to the whole world. You almost want to say, oh, come on, Paul, cheer up a little bit. Can I get... And he's saying, wait a second. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, here's our far greater destiny, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And now he says it again. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift 
Notice how many times he says here the free gift. What do you do for a free gift? Don't. I mean, it's the one thing I get in economics. I love free. I say all the time, as a matter of fact, when Joel and Evie and I lived in Oklahoma, we would go each year to the Oklahoma State Fair. And we love the Oklahoma State Fair. And I would have a contest with Joel. We'd grab our two bags and I'd say, let's see who can get the most free stuff. Go to each booth and each thing. Okay? The DNA of sin is I have to make life work. I have to be in control. You want to know why the gospel is so counterintuitive? Because the DNA of the gospel is receive grace as a free gift. That makes all of us squirm. Oh, I don't like that. Nothing's free. What's the catch? Got to be a catch somewhere. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, notice again the words much more. Here's the far greater destiny. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice something here. Through Adam, death reigns. Look at who reigns through Jesus Christ. We would expect the contrast to be through Adam, death reigned. Through Jesus Christ, life reigns, right? That would seem to make sense. That's not what the text says. The text says, and look with me carefully, through, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Who is he talking about there? Who receives the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness? Raise your hand if you're a Christian. That's us. We receive the free gift of grace and the abundance of righteousness. And look at what the text says. We reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know fully what this will mean in God's new world. All I do know it mean, is what it means is that somehow in the eschaton, in the new world that has been launched now, that we ought to be practicing now, Christians are in charge. Christians reign. That's my biblical proof text, if you will. We better be a church for and not a church against. Because we're practicing now for the eschaton, for God's new world, where we reign, and notice it says, in life. We reign in life. Friends, the church is to be the hope for the world. Through Jesus Christ, St. Augustine used to have this phrase. He'd refer to Christ as the total Christ. And the total Christ means Jesus, head and body. Jesus is the head of the church, and the body 
is the church, the body of Christ. And together, head and body is the total Christ. Jesus has come to bring life and bring life to the full. And he's accomplished it in his person, his work, his death, his resurrection. And now, he's ruling and reigning. He's ascended unto high at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he's reigning through the church. Government's not the hope of the world. No program is the hope of the world. And the, the government, and I don't care what side we're on, affiliating on either side, the church connected to Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world. Because Paul has said, those who receive the abundance of grace, do you think maybe we need to learn a little bit more God's lavish grace? What I said the point of the sermon was in the beginning, we don't understand the lavishness of grace. Maybe that's what we need to commit our life to. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will reign in life. Friends, let's be a church that's for. Let's be life givers in our interactions. Let's not be like the world on either side of the spectrum that's marked by aggression, pugilism, violence, the culture of death. I get you one hour a week. I'm afraid the news or the media or whatever we're listening to or our sports or whatever it might be gets us the other. Doug, I'm not a math major. 167 hours, am I doing the math right? Ah, whatever, whatever the 24 times. I get you one hour. Everybody else gets you the rest of the week. You think I have to be a little passionate here? I'm pleading with you. I only get you one hour a week. I want us to be shaped by the story of God. I want us to be shaped by the abundance of grace. Because that's what the text of the Bible says. You with me? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the gospel. And thank you for the living hope that it brings. I need this hope and I need to have this hope renewed. And so Lord, I pray... And I pray now that because we've been in your presence, we've heard from your word, we've heard your text, that we would be renewed. And we would leave here as we're about to sing, as the redeemed, loving to proclaim our redemption. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our final hymn of the morning, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It.
friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen. We've...